the Sangha here tonight. And um, I thought I would talk about the Sangha uh, sort of in line with the season. Um, and for tape purposes, this is the eve of Christmas Eve. And um, I'd like to just um, start off with by telling you how I learned there wasn't any Santa Claus. <laughs> I was uh, a young boy. I don't remember the age, but maybe six or something. And uh, it was Easter time, and I, at that point, couldn't believe in an Easter bunny. So I asked my mother if there was such a thing, and she said, no. And then <laughs> a light went off, and I said, well, how about a Santa Claus? And she said, no, no Santa Claus either. <laughs> and I ran upstairs to my older brother, who's four years older than I am, and I asked him if he knew. And he said, yes, he had known for some time. And I said, then why hadn't you told me? And he said, well, I didn't want to spoil your uh, enjoyment. And I said, my enjoyment? It wasn't true. <laughs> so even at that age, there was something that was percolating there. <laughs> it was like somehow I, I felt at the time that I had been lied to. And that was much more difficult for me to handle, and I'm not saying that this is universally true by any means, and I'm not saying that everybody should tell people that there isn't a Santa Claus, but I, for me it was much more important to know what was true than to move on into and believe in the fantasy world. And I keep coming to this time of the year with signs and songs and imprints imparting a certain spirit that I rarely feel at this time of year. <coughs> because why should it be this time of year that I feel this? Why should this season induce something in me that isn't either in me to begin with or artificially created? And so I enjoy coming back together as a community and looking at what's real. And tonight I want to talk about the Sangha because the Sangha for me is to use other people to validate our reality. I walked in this, after, or this evening and one of the volunteers was saying how stressed he felt, how much tension he felt from the holiday. And this is the joy of the spirit of, that most of us feel. Or we may not feel generous at all. We may not feel in line with what the advertisements are proclaiming. And we somehow feel left out of not having the Christmas spirit if we don't feel that kind of generosity and joy. As if, what's wrong with us? And to have that constant wave, really, of market economy, wave of being told how we have to feel, to have the, the spirit in order to be generous so that we can continue to. I don't think that's what this season is about at all. I think it's about being what 
It's the birth of knowing what is real. What was, when Christ threw the money lenders out of the temple, what was he saying? Except what, I mean, what, was he, what would he be saying today? Are we coming back to see what's real? And if we can't find it in each other's eyes, we aren't going to be able to find it. If we can't find it within the community that has dedicated its purpose and intention of life to discovering that, where are we going to find it? And it's not to humbug Christmas at all because there may be a legitimate way that that season invites a certain generosity of heart in all of us. But it can't be artificially induced. It can't be pressured from the outside. <clears throat> it's like forced Christmas shopping. Nothing is more repugnant to me than forced Christmas. I have to buy gifts. If that isn't the contradiction, the, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? I have to buy, I have to be generous. And so, the Sangha to me is a breath of sanity, a breath of sanity. Breathe in and deeply. And yet the Sangha, the community, Sangha literally means gathering, the gathering of like-minded people, the gathering of people who are finding and dedicating their life to wisdom and compassion with their feet on the ground and walking straight ahead and not letting anyone say whatever feeling you have is the wrong feeling. And we awaken through kindness. Now if that isn't the birth of the sacred, which is what this day is supposed to mean, I remember uh, I went to a teacher's meeting um, several years ago and it was all the Buddhist teachers that had gathered and congregated um, and there were like 150 of us or something of all the different traditions in Buddhism um, and there were enormous number of years of practice by most of them Tibetan teachers all Western teachers Tibetan teachers Zen teachers Zen Roshis Vipassana teachers and well, before I left, I thought, oh, God, this is just going to be pretentious. It's just, you know, everybody's going to try to outwise the next person. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and I was absolutely thrown off guard because nobody had that pretension at all. 
everybody came in and it wasn't as if there were no nothing there were no problems there were a lot of problems a lot of opinions that one tradition had held with another and a lot of and we were discussing all that but the willingness to be human beings and to open ourselves to our own humanity and to share from that sense of humanity and kindness was what was the pervasive spirit of that time and I thought well this is really what it means to grow dharmically not in pretension but in our humanity and our basic goodness not our pretended goodness and if this season can't bring out our basic goodness and I'm not just talking about the holiday season the month including New Year's and all of the different festive days Jewish and African American etc if it isn't a commitment to find our basic humanity our basic goodness free from what the layers televised advertised layers through which we just walk constantly wave after wave in song in merriment right through it so hard to get our bearings to get our compass direction with all of that coming at us without getting caught up in the swirl of affluence when there's a whole area of life that aren't touched by this at all in fact the most of us read somewhere that were the more depressive episodes during this time than any other time of the year because people don't feel what they're supposed to be feeling and so it sends them swirling down into depression <laughs> so see that uh, the Buddha said what's he, at one point uh, Ananda said uh, surely Buddha half of the holy life is communion with good people and the Buddha said no the whole of the holy life is communion with good people the whole the whole thing it's just having a resource for to where we can align our sanity and sometimes when it's an enclosed exclusive group where people don't freely come and go there can be a, a process of groupthink where thoughts of the group have no outlet, no way of being, no feedback, no way of being developed and altered and changed and there's nothing new coming in and that's a cult. Or we can be so isolated in ourselves that it's just our minds that we're constantly reflecting back in ourselves and we become a one-person cult 
which is what most of us are. <laughs> but the Sangha should be completely porous, totally permeable. And everyone has one and only one predominant intention. And that is to grow in wisdom and compassion. Using each other, the group, as a guide towards that direction. But mostly using one's own sense of honesty and sincerity as that direction. But relishing in the camaraderie and the companionship of others who are also moving in that way. Well, we say, okay, greed, negativity, and self-delusion is not how I'm going to live my life. I'm not going to live my life that way. And what is it that we are coming to except this wave of holiday greed? So where is the mind of the Sangha? Where is the heart of the Sangha in the middle of that? It was real, when I was in Thailand, December 25th is just, it might as well be April 4th. It's like nothing. <laughs> and with years of decades of having cultivated that sense of the 25th being something special, even as a monk, you're sort of, you'd like to have one of those little woo, you know, those <laughs> little hatters. <laughs> something to acknowledge it. Maybe a little more food that day, something. But nothing, nothing. <laughs> there you are. There you go. Now, it's a di okay, so there, that's it. <laughs> so you, you live for a few years without that and you come back to it and you see what, I don't quite understand, you, you know, I can't quite fit back into the same anticipation. So the Sangha, the community, the, community, the grounded community within us, the groundedness, where I can look into your eyes and you don't have to pretend anything. And we can hold whatever one might be feeling as the legitimate emotion of that person and allow that person to work through his or her emotions just as they are. And we hold that non-judgmental reference. Okay. And we work as a community because as the heart grows in that direction, it naturally expands in its inclusivity 
and it works towards overcoming the suffering of all people, not just our own. Somehow I think Christianity in its heart of hearts has that as its intention as well. And we carry the lineage with us. And I want to talk about the lineage because I think we pass it by too easily. I was reading once where American Indians would often go to their ancestral ceremonial grounds and perform ceremonies on that same area of ground so that they could unify with all of time as they were doing their ceremony. And it wasn't as if those ancestors were present only in thought. But when they stood on the ground, the Indians said they were in the presence of their ancestors. And they danced with them. And whenever we, as a group of people, have the intentionality to be kind, to be heartfelt, to learn what's true, to discern what is true, what is in front of our eyes. All beings who have ever made that intentionality join us in that moment of consciousness. The lineage is in us sitting together and questioning and asking and directing the energy of our life towards the discernment of what is real. And when we do that, we join the heritage of Buddhism. We join the Buddha himself. And with that lineage behind us, that's all we need. That's the refuge. You take refuge. You take refuge in the Sangha? Of course. And I take refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma. I take refuge. Of course. Of course I take refuge in that. Because it's here. Because it's as tangible as the ground under our feet. And when we have that behind us, when we have the momentum of that power, of that energy, of that history behind us, and we can just, okay, I take refuge in that then there's, look, all problems are solvable from that, with that intentionality. All life is workable. The conditions of life come and go. But we look more for the heart of what is workable within those conditions, through those conditions.
You know, it's interesting. One, in, when you're a monk, there are three um, <coughs> rules that if you break, uh, you immediately expelled from the sangha. They're the harshest rules that you could do. Harshest laws that you. One of them is um, breaking or splitting or fracturing the Sangha. So you ask, uh, one of the, just to bring some Christianity since it's the Christian day. Christ said, when two or more are gathered together, I will be with you. Now, why would he say two or more? That's always bothered me. Why not one? Why not just me? <laughs> why, don't, why two or more? That never made sense. Was he saying something about Sangha? Was he saying something about community? And is it ever possible, even in your most lonely, isolated cave or hermitage, to be cut off completely from life at all? Don't we carry more than one with us wherever we go? Aren't we always relating with something, even when we're in isolation? Is there ever really one? I thought more about people when I was a monk than when I was in the middle of a crowd. You see, I don't think we're ever one. We always carry more than one. And at the beginning, when we begin to practice, we may have the wrong idea, and often I get questions about this. Don't you think practice is really a selfish thing? I mean, I'm taking X number of minutes a day, and I'm by myself, and I separate myself out, and it just seems all about me. And I'm just constantly focused in on what's going on inside of me. Is it? let's, so let's clear this one out so that we never have to bring that question back in again. Tell me, is it selfish when you take a shower? How about when you eat a meal? Is that selfish? I'm selfish, being selfish. I should never eat. course we have to look within ourselves because the problem is there and it does mean a focus an internal focus and giving high priority to that focus but that's not where the process stops it doesn't arrest with me it doesn't say fixated on I that's not the Sangha the Sangha calls forth to solve the problem, the heart expands out beyond oneself. You solve the problem and the heart goes out. 
The heart is just waiting because it's locked in, it's jailed within the eye for you to solve the mathematical equation of what the eye is. The eye is, when we see that, the clouds part and the heart opens. But we can't get out of jail unless there's an examination of the problem. It's time well spent. But we're, even as we're doing that, we use each other in order to do that. I mean, mostly where we're fixated and lost and disturbed is in the company and projection of other people. So when we can come together as a community around some health in that, in some sanity in that community, then those projections can be ironed out, can be straightened out, can be aligned towards sanity rather than towards our pain. And we can start questioning that, questioning our prejudice, questioning our judgments, looking at those things, checking them out to see if they have any validation, going back and questioning, where are those things coming from? And when we're with people, that's when we feel the most of it. At least that's my experience. My spouse, Ellen, came back from a six-week long meditation course at the IMS and when she got back she was talking about how easy metta was for her when she pictured our cat Willow she Willow's just she was one of these cats you put on the shoulder and she just and I said well what about me (laughs) (laughs) and she she said you were harder that's the way we all are with each we're harder it's harder it's harder but that's where the work is that's where it is and that deep richness of all coming we're all in this together you know it's not we're just all in this together just no t- we don't have time to pre- be pretentious. We don't have time for that. We don't have time for power plays. We don't have time for that. I mean, if any of you have reached middle age, which some of you have by looking around, <laughs> but even if you haven't, and some of you haven't looking around, there isn't time. So let's use what we have here in the midst, the willingness to be sane with one another, to put that aside, and use the strength and commitment and intentionality that each of us have to walk, to be supported through our walking with others. You can feel it. Why come? Why gather? Because there's a support factor there. 
It makes it easier when you're with other people. Because when we're not, we have the world of insanity telling us about Santa Claus. You go, uh huh? Do you believe in Santa Claus? Well, how come you didn't tell me? And we need other people who don't believe. <laughs> because each of our hearts know in its depth of depth what is true. And that light just shines a little brighter when we look into somebody else's eyes who also validate that fact. And when we're feeling the loss of our kindness or the sense of isolation or when we have cocooned ourselves in our greed and negativity and self-delusion. We don't take that as the fact. We now know that that's just our past conditioning. We don't have to take that as being, we quite, okay, is this it? Is this true? And we have some place to go, someone to call upon, something to resonate to break out of that cocoon and fly away again and again and again because the cocoon is ever-present. Okay, so this is it. So the purposes of the Sangha, and I just want to go through a few. To waken oneself through the support of the community. to move into the lineage with other people, it's always interesting to me because, you know, except the fact that we dress 21st century, some of us, We could be any age at all. We could be, you know, 500 BC. Because they're all doing, it's, a, it's the same thing. This is, I'm sure this hasn't changed that much. And when we come together, it's not our presentation or our appearance that matters at all. Or even our age, because this is ageless. Whether we're young or old, the heart knows no age. And it's easier. It's easier when you come together to practice. It's easier to use everyone's common intention even when d times of discouragement and times of low energy and times of difficulty, we can do this. And you just hook yourself onto the train. The train's pulling, you just hook your car on there and you get pulled along with it. This is why we do it. This is one of the reasons we do it. 
and we find ourselves moving within this group and even outside of it to those who are despairing, to those who are in pain, to those who are in need, because the heart, as it awakens, responds to pain, holds joy, a much deeper joy than the joy that's being advertised this time of year, a much deeper joy. But it's also available for pain and responds to that. And we come together for that reason as well. We come together to provide a common dialogue where we each can share at the level of what understanding we have. It's not as if we all have to be super wise. And everyone can attend to each other regardless of what the experience level of that person is. We can listen respectfully. On retreats, do you know how many times I've heard knee pain? You listen. What do you say? I've heard that 10,000 times. I'm not going to listen to that again. The parental side of it. Or you just, okay, so let's explore knee pain. <laughs> Can't we do that together? There's a, I had a friend who just died, uh, died uh, six months or so ago in um, Everett, and he was a AA sponsor and also a, a budding meditation teacher. And he, we would drive back and forth to Cloud Mountain. He'd give me a ride down there many, many times, and we would talk about his AA experience, his sponsorship, and he would tell me that he would have, you know, a number of people who... Uh, he sponsored, and some of these people would um, go back to drink. And they, he would get a call at 2 o'clock in the morning, and he would pick this guy up from the gutter, and he would start all over, step one of 12 step. He'd start all over. Okay, we'll begin again. Not judging the person or casting them aside or this is a worthless, but okay. And I said, how do you do that? I can't do that in meditation. How do you do that? How do you do that? He says, because I did it. He says, that's how you do it. I said, oh yeah, I did this. How many times did I complain about knee pain? It's hard. It's hard to learn. You can't learn, most of us cannot learn in a vacuum. We learn through relationship, through interacting, through experience, <coughs> through falling, constantly falling, picking ourselves back up and falling again and again and again. We learn through the bruises and the scraped knees. The third thing that a the Sangha does is it challenges our complacency, our inertia, 
where we don't want to change. It's so interesting to me. Everyone wants to be enlightened, but no one wants to change to get there. We hold ourselves back through our fear. And so we just give each other courage. We challenge it. Well, what, okay, what is that? Now, is that true? Is that fear true? Is it true? Can you take another step? And what's so good about life as you're living it now? Why can't you take another step? The willingness to question is that. And cults are stuck. They're being held fast for power reasons. So free up the shackles. Okay. Where am I? Okay, where am I resting? Where am I dependent? Where am I holding myself back here? Another ingredient of a healthy sangha is the sense of safety. Our hearts want safety. Our hearts want to feel at ease and content and be able to just, without having your or my judgments intrude upon each and every activity and thought we might have, let us just be safe together so that I can feel free to explore. And the Sangha tries, attempts, and it's not perfect in that because we're all growing in that. But if you gather a hundred people up from the community and put them together, I dare say you aren't going to find the degree of safety you find in this room. And so it's moving in that way. Okay. And I like associating with the people who are the wisest. Why associate with people that bring us down into negativity? Why not associate our life, why not have our life coupled with people who are moving towards greater clarity? These little KM groups that we have formed and Kalyanamita groups where people are looking at a particular issue and exploring and it doesn't have to be just the meetings on Monday when we can foster and encourage these same developed groups And finally, Sangha is not about itself as the final resource. It's about moving itself 
even beyond that concentric circle into the greater good of all humanity, of all beings. The stranger, the sick, the prisoner, the dying. Time to time you need an oasis to drink, to cool down, to refresh yourself. You can go back out into the desert and hear about Santa Claus. To come into an oasis. To feel the lineage, to feel the power of what we do. That's Sangha. Can we sit for a minute or two? He would say that about himself and the lineage of 2,500 years of build-up commentary. Because it's about regaining our aliveness. It's about coming back into the wonder. It's about returning once more to the mystery. Not to the encasement of, of the mental ideas about something, but into the innocence, least we become like little children. We cannot, what does that mean? The, the innocent, the, where's their ease in this moment? Where's their love in this moment? Think of the most aspiring thing that you would like to move towards. What aspires you? And then bring that into confrontation with your conflict and your struggle and your pain. Where is their ease in this? Where is their contentment in this? Where is their love in this? Where is their wonder in this? Where is their wonder in this? Feel the beauty of that question. In the argument where you're so self-righteous, where is there wonder in this? But I know I'm not, no, where is there wonder in this? Let us never forget that this practice is about and only about one thing. Just this. Just this wonder. Just this mystery. Just this aliveness. Feel the heart come alive in the wonder. You know you're on the right path because the heart's alive. And because the aliveness is a soft aliveness. It's not a bewildering, punishing, brutal aliveness. It's a tender aliveness that's caring, a caring aliveness.
And when you hear or do or see or follow or practice a path that deadens you, it's either being said wrong and you're misinterpreting it, or the attitude with which you face it is one of security, stability, which will give you a powerful intellect, but will never give you a powerful heart. And so it's our question. It's not only our question tonight, it's our question for our lifetime. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.